Fuck pain. Fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. From the multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Dows Podcast. Tonight we get to bring you a fresh interview with our old friend Taoist monk Yunro as he pays us a visit during an incredibly difficult time to spread some light on his new nemesis, Valley Fever. Despite it all, his spirit is strong and we talk about many topics and he has a lot to say as we chat about life, death, and the space in between. It's a great conversation and it's great to get to speak with him again. Here we go. And now... Asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind. For the Drunken Dallas Podcast begins now. Bum, 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 bum. Welcome back, everybody. Another fine episode of the Drunken Dows Podcast, episode 215, as they just count on and on. You lucky folks. We're back for more. Danielle, across from me, back in Ojai once again. Today, pretty heavy episode. Yes, indeed. We have a former guest, Mr. How shall we call him? The monk formerly known as Arthur Rosenfeld. Yunro. Uh, <laughs> he's um, back with us. Unfortunately, in his case, not for... I mean, it's a good reason to get to sit down and chat. That's fantastic. He's going through a lot. Uh, so this is um, this is an interesting one because the, the situation he's in is forcing him to kind of take a look at the whole idea of impermanence, of the possibility of death and everything associated with it. So it's... Uh, it's definitely rough. He's approaching it with as good of a spirit as one can hope for. Yeah. And so that's the discussion that we're going to be having. Settle in. Now, before we do that, let's say a few thank yous. For one, thank you for the chance of being able to sit down with him again to record. That's a good one. We record with him, I think, two or three times in the past. And, yeah. um, and this is good. Because it didn't look like it a few months ago. Like at one point in September, his heart stopped beating. He had to be revived. It was pretty wild. But um, And a pretty long coma, too. Yeah. So in the thank you department, of course, thank you to Shore Design for having been in our corner forever and making our glorious T-shirts. Thank you to grasslandbeef.com for keeping us fed with some of really high-quality food that makes us happy. So... Anytime uh, you're thinking of grocery shopping, I'm not telling you not to do that, but first, give a click to grasslandbeef.com and see if you can get something from them rather than from the department store or something. The quality is fantastic. We love it, and they are nice to us. So what more can you ask? Yeah, and you get a better look at how the machine works. I mean, it's so nice how like the packaging all happens in a couple of days, so it's not like this sit, sits around no. and waits for you. No, it's all you know, they very pack it, quick. They freeze it, and it's to you, FedEx. To the door, yeah. And it's amazing. And scrumptious. Indeed, and uh, and we had him on as a guest in the past, and uh, so you may uh, want to check out that episode if you haven't done so. 
shout outs to a few folks. Um, Zebraathletics.com, of course, for the mats in my garage, making up my home de- homemade dojo. Uh, going well with grassland beef, I guess. OccultHerbsAndTonic.com. Uh, that's again OccultHerbsAndTonics.com. These folks make some mixes of various herbs for the kitchen. Rabs for steak, uh, Italian seasoning, all sort of stuff, and I love them. They, every one of the ones I've sampled so far, have been great, and uh, I look forward to more to pass to Mister Evers. So <laughs> we can. Uh, that would be sweet. So check them out. You know, if you are in the market for those things, check out what they have to offer first. You know, saying Italian rubs just makes me say quickly: Have you been to the Immigrant Sun and Main Street in Ventura? I have not. These cats are bringing their own pizza dough or pizza flour over from Italy. Oh, I need to go. And they, um, so they'll do the pasta, but the bowl will be pizza dough. Right. And I think the garlic supply in Ventura must dip every time they make the sauce. Because it's that good, huh? Man, it is fantastic. And the, the coffee and the espressos are ridiculous, like oil on the top of them. We found it. We go there a lot now. They make it. They make a breakfast lasagna that is insane. Breakfast lasagna. That's yep. that's for real troopers. Yeah, <laughs> that's the hardcore stuff. Well, I invite everybody to check it. Anyway, I mentioned it. Who knows? Anybody's L.A. Whatever. It's worth a trip up because they are fantastic. This is this is just because I liked it and I want y'all to know. I like that. I dig that. <laughs> and uh, the last shout outs. Um, um or however you said, AUM, in a non-home version, sellers, and uh, and also to materawines.com for providing us with fantastic wine. Anything else we need to throw out there? Well, of course, there's the big thank you goes to those of you who have been kind enough to part with your hard-earned money to support us. So let's go mention the nice folks. Let the pottering begin. We got... Frederick Hahn, Mike Allen, Lisa Robles, Nick Zunik, Aistis Juska, Thomas Robinson, John Vergara, Nicola Togni, Joseph Lord, Samuele Rudelli, and Jim D'Amico. No strangers in that list. No, but uh, very sweet. It is very sweet. It's very, definitely appreciated. Very, very sweet. Those folks have been with us for a long time. I think I'm going to go on a limb. I'm not sure. I think Mr. Joseph Lord is a new addition to our lineup. So... Thank you very much. Michael, and Michael, and I think was a while back. But uh, yeah, it's fantastic people who are nice to us, and we love that. Speaking of nice folks, there's uh, our friends at 10 Green Land Conservancy are putting together a fundraising event that's coming up in June. It's called a Hikeathon, and it's an opportunity to give back and protect nature while we go off adventuring. The idea is that participants will sign up to help fundraise for the nonprofit while they compete for amazing prizes in a variety of outdoor recreational categories. Registration begins in May, and the competition takes place through the month of June. You can learn more about this great event at 10green, dot org, And the money goes to um, Conservancy for Land in Tennessee so they can't be gobbled up and turned into houses and you know leave natural, natural spaces open. But you can participate and do these hikes anywhere in the country. And maybe win some prizes. So, some nice cats. And oddly enough, their office was like two blocks from where my office was <laughs> 15 years ago. I found that odd. And uh, right there on Music Row, y'all. So, I love that. So, you don't necessarily have to get your hankies out, but. 
this is pretty heavy. I mean, this is a man with a lot of wisdom and some uh, heaviness in his heart, but he's really taking it well, and we all uh, could hope to be as calm and such a crazy circumstance. You know, my pal Mike was the same way, and that poor bastard did not catch a break a single time, and it was two years of just being whittled apart by some nastiness. And Yeah, the universe is not big on fairness. Oh, no. But, you know, to find smiles and raise middle fingers is definitely the way to step into it, and his, his, both those fellows are a great example of that. And off we go. The other day I went, I went to one of my zillion doctors and he brought a medical student into the room, a girl. And I assumed that he said something about me to her before we came in. And uh, when he was talking to me, he said, turned to her and he said, you know, he's a monk. And she said, right. And he, and he said, he's, he's not a monk because he got ordained a monk or because he uses his monk name. He's a monk because he spent a year at the gates of hell and kept his cool the whole time. And I thought that was one of the better of the microscopic number of compliments I've received in the last year. That was a, that was a good one. So that made me think maybe we ought to talk about, you know, Wuji in, in like the worst possible scenario yeah pretty much i mean are there worse diseases than this i guess als might be worse either way you end up you know dead in the hospital seizing and unable to function but i can still move at least so that that's a plus so on, on that note ladies and gentlemen this was yours truly the <laughs> the monk formerly known as Arthur Rosenfeld. <laughs> right, exactly. The monk Yunro. As you can tell from his intro, he's not facing the easiest time of his life. So that's where we're going to go. We're going to chat about life, death, the space in between, and everything related. So for the sake of uh, just giving people a sense of what's up... Um, do you want to just give a tiny bit of the history of uh, kind of where you're at yeah. now? And I think it's important to um, bring a little attention to this obscure disease, mm -hmm. right? That people yeah. don't know about. I, I wouldn't have moved to Arizona if I knew about it. So it's, it's a worthwhile thing to share. Yeah. I'd never heard of it before. I thought you had boogie fever and it was going to be okay because that's been going around. It, it has been. And that's why I have only a a little miniature button mushroom left where formerly there was glory. There is no more glory. <laughs> no glory there, huh? <laughs> so you managed to catch the one disease that pretty much everyone who catches it doesn't even know they have it. If they do know they have it, there are easy fixes to it. And you happen to catch the 0.001 version where that's not the case. So what's interesting to me about all this is that it's very closely linked to climate change. 
Mm-hmm. And to me, this that's probably, you know, the most relevant thing for a lot of people to understand. As the climate changes, these tropical fungi, um, you know, more rain, just, just whatever change there might be in, you know, Central and South American jungles, in uh, tropical areas in, in Southeast Asia and so on. These, these fungi are endemic. They, they're just in the soil usually. But when you disturb the soil in new ways, they sporulate, they go into the air, and people get them. And the thing about how rare they are is it, it's actually very misleading because in those places, people don't have the diagnosis. They don't even know about the disease in most cases. And then, you know, if there's people get sick and die, very often they're not diagnosed. Now, you know, if you're in a if you're in Thailand, if you're in Bangkok or some urban center where you have a medical center, that's a different story. But just, you know, out, out in the country. So I think the same thing is true of this disease. Um, num- number one, I believe, although I don't have data on this, but I speculate that climate change is probably going to affect the prevalence of this disease as well. So it's called valley fever. And it, it's prevalent around Bakersfield and, uh, and also in Southern Arizona. And now some cases because of the aforementioned changes, you know, it's showing up in places like uh, Oregon, other spots that didn't used to have it so much. It's in LA, but very few people get it. It's a fungus that you inhale. And um, as the world expert on this disease mentioned to me one time, you don't have to be in like a giant sandstorm to get this. So, you know, ignorant of this whole thing, when we first moved here, there was a giant sandstorm and it was spectacular. And I went into my backyard, you know, I'm, I'm a few thousand feet above the city and I watched the whole thing roll in and it was incredible. Like, you know, really like in the movies, you see a wall of, of color and then there are embedded thunderstorms and it, just so beautiful, you know. And like an idiot, I'm out there breathing and smiling, you know. Uh, that, there isn't any any firm evidence that that's when I got it. Um, but it kind of makes some sense that when things are stirred up, you know, it's construction workers get it because, you know, they're in the, working in the soil. So, uh, farm workers can get it for the same reason. Um, but you can also get it changing planes in Tucson Airport. It, you know, you can be in an air-conditioned sealed building you know, you're going to, from Chicago to LA, you go through Tucson, whatever. You could theoretically, and they have documented cases where somebody just changed planes and caught the disease. So the vast majority of the people who get it either don't know they have it, or they're aware that they're sick for a week or two, maybe. They feel like they got a bad cold or they have headaches or whatever. Um, and then the immune system takes care of it. More rarely, uh, the, the disease will disseminate and leave the lungs where it lives for most people. Um, people can contract it, not know they have it and then or have had it, and then discover later when they have a chest x-ray for some unrelated thing that there are these nodules and scarification in the lung that as evidence that it was living there. And, and you know, but it's it's not active anymore. So you, you know, you could still see those nodules 20 years later, theoretically. Anyway. In some cases, it goes other places. So it could go to the skin. They they say this is the disease disseminates. 
it goes throughout the body. Um, you can get skin eruptions, you can get it in your heart, your kidneys, you know, anywhere theoretically. And what you said about, you know, the treatment not being a big deal is not quite right because the treatment is very chemo-ish. It actually is used, uh, they use a class of drug called, um, I, I'm not making this up, but some, at times during the last couple of years, I wish I would make it up, uh, called azoles. It, it sounds a lot like acid. Really. Yes, it, it does. Not. There's, this class, there's this class of drug and it's very noxious. And they developed most of them at the beginning of the AIDS crisis because people who are suffering from AIDS got these opportunistic infections. And then, you know, this would help, these drugs would help quiet them down. Um, so actually, in most cases, the combination of your immune system and the azoles are fungistatic and fungicidal, meaning they stop the thing from growing and could eliminate it from your body. That's fungicide, kill it. The worst place that it can go is your brain. And, you know, I have the misfortune of having this coxy, uh, coxioides meningitis, so it went into my brain. Why? Uh, nobody knows. Not immunocompromised, not particularly weak, just genetically, maybe a slow immune response. It's, they, don't, they really don't know. Um, so just, just pretty much once straight, it's in up, there, straight up bad luck. Bad luck. Once it's in there, though, things are not rosy. Um, and some of these aforementioned drugs can slow the progression, make it so they don't reproduce. And they just exist there, you know, in the brain tissue. But they're not gone. They're kind of sleeping. And the body, you know, is not stupid. So the body knows they're there and creates this, you know, magnificent immune response, which is mostly inflammation. And the inflammation is the problem because, you know, the, the inflammation can just bring a little bit of the disease into the heart, which happened to me. I had a heart attack. Um, it can bring it into the bladder or the prostate. Happened to me. Uh, I've all, had all kinds of surgeries to try to repair inflammation related to this. Can go to the kidneys, which happened to me and, and left me dead on the floor in September. Uh, you know, when I say dead, it's not clear whether I had a heartbeat or not because the uh, paramedics came and I was unresponsive. And whatever they did, they did in the ambulance and I wasn't awake for it. But it was very grim. And I was really, really sick and in the hospital for a long time, some of which I was unconscious for days. There really isn't, if you've got it in the brain, there isn't a cure. Um, and so you're on these drugs for the rest of your life, however long that is. And they are challenging, those medications. The whole group of them, there's three or four different azoles, but in my own experience anyway, some people seem to tolerate them better than others. For me, they're very rough. So, you know, like, like a like chemo reaction. So nauseated all the time and exhausted and unable to do much. <laughs> so a little while back, maybe two months ago, you know, things were getting worse. And I was kind of looking at the end and thinking, did I want to go out the way people go out from this disease in the brain? And as I was contemplating other ways to end my life, they came back to me and they said, well, there's an experimental drug and a moment on that, I worked in pharma for a long time, so 
I, I was familiar with sort of how things work with those studies. And what they don't tell you is that even if the drug is successful, and this is true not only of experimental drugs, it's just true in general mm-hmm. about drugs, medications, pharmaceuticals, you know, 15 years down the line, you can find that, you know, suddenly you have no liver from the, you know, from the months you spent on this drug or no kidneys or whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of things that just come come up. And I, I'm not knocking pharma in this regard. I have plenty to knock pharma about, but not, mm-hmm. not this. They're just doing their best to figure something out. Yeah. Anyway, um, so there's a group in England that started this little company because of what we I, I mentioned in terms of climate change. They saw a business opportunity, opportunity to cure and help people and also to make some dough because they see that these things are increasing and increasing. So in kind of a medium to long term, it, it could be a good business plan. But only if A, the medication works and B, it works on more than one kind of lethal fungus. In other words, they wanted a sort of a blanket category cure-all because if it works on just one, it could be that for, it could work for someone like me, but that's not a business model because, you know, I'm one in a zillion people get this, you know, one a tiny, tiny, tiny percent. So, it, you know, there was a few years ago, there was another cure, but they couldn't, you know, this is the American healthcare system. They couldn't make a business out of it. Yeah, that's an interesting die. one because I mentioned in private conversation, you said that uh, there was actually a full-on cure for this but essentially it to just to, has been abandoned and it's no longer produced and it's no longer available anywhere because there was no money to be made because not enough people got it. This happened before I got sick, so I wasn't involved in any of that. But from what I can gather, you know, it was a successful gambit. They came up with a cure um, and, you know, they needed X number of dollars to make it go. And now this uh, British company has come up with this drug and it, it is active against a lot of these fun- fungi that we've been talking about. And the really good news is that where it is, to, this is to the best of my understanding, because everybody's playing it very close to the chest in this business, right? But what I understand is that where it is fungostatic, meaning where it uh, stops the fungus from you know, doing its thing and it just stays there and sleeps, it is also fungicidal, meaning it kills it. If you take the drug long enough, the fungus dies. Okay, so okay. it does seem that they have documented that the fungus that I have does respond to this drug. So there is some hope now, but whether it will work on the kind that's in the brain, you know, the study, the number of people who have it in the brain is so small that it's very hard for anybody. Nobody promises anything, right? But it's the option I've got. So is there a terrible danger that it'll destroy your internal fauna, like intestinally? I, you know, I don't think fungi, it doesn't kill other things. So I, I'm pretty sure, but I don't know, that fungi in the gut would probably not be a good thing. I don't think that's part of the natural microbiome. There's viruses and there's all kinds of bacteria. Um, I know that this drug does not work on vaginal yeast infections, which is too bad for the company because that would be a great market. You experimented personally to find <laughs> out. Well, that's a, that's a big no. market. Oh yeah. So if you're making if you're making a business, oh yeah, yeah. You, know, you really want to make a drug that helps people, you know, yeah. who 
where the thing is common and everybody gets it. It's like a common cold cure. Yep. You imagine if you got that, yep. take a pill, no more cold, like that. So, you know, it's a common thing. Vaginal yeast infections and yeast overgrowth from steroid use. It's called thrush. You can get it in the throat, you know. But as far as like my intestine digestion, honestly, the drug is probably more injurious to to me than than the fungus is. Um, so that's the other thing is that I'm on so many different medications and I'm a guy that like not a medication person, you know, deal with it with, with meditation, with exercise and with herbs, Chinese medicine, acupuncture. But because I spent so long in the pharmaceutical business, I'd, uh, only if I absolutely, absolutely have to, really have to. So I'm this, this group of things, this handful of pills I take every day. There's really just no dissecting away. What, it, like, why do I have a terrible headache? Is it because I took this other thing or, you know, this thing makes inflammation in my heart, blood pressure goes up, two different blood pressure medicines. Am I asleep all day because of those? Or am I asleep all day because of the experimental medicine or because of the fungus? You know, there's just no way to tease it out. So it's just one, one day at a time. Mm-hmm. And it's not fun. When they go experimental, is there also a chance that you could get the placebo or are they a point where they're definitely so trying? So I, I think, you know, that's that's a really good question. I think that it would not be ethical to take me off a drug that is known to hold the disease and put me on a placebo. So no no study would get approved that that you know, if the if the disease is not fatal, then you know that's a different story, but if the disease is fatal yeah, and you're on something that's keeping yeah. you alive, there's pretty much zero chance they can take you off that, put you on a sugar pill, you know. Yeah. They, they would be arrested. Yeah. You know. That thing. So I think I think not, and the study numbers—that's the other thing. Full, small, handful of people here, handful of people there. It's not. Yeah, yeah of course. So what's interesting about all this for me is to watch my mind and see how I deal with this kind of thing. And you know, the unknown is huge, mm-hmm. right? Not knowing what is going on exactly. Let me. Um, give one piece of levity to this. And I guess it's a reflection of, you know, keeping your Wuji or not keeping your Wuji for, for listeners, you know, just your equilibrium, keeping your cool through this. I was comatose for a number of days in the hospital after my kidneys failed. And I was full getting pumped with all kinds of things to bring me back. When I, when I awoke, my wife has of course been, you know, by my bed the whole time she got you know caught in there that was the uh, shoe being on the other foot because you know 40 years ago i was in the opposite situation uh, and my first wife was uh, grievously injured and i spent a month by her side in coma i wasn't nearly so bad as that of course woke up and i looked at her and i said i I want a Kerry Blue Terrier. <laughs> okay. And she looks at me, she says, you know, you're unconscious for four days and now you're awake and that's that's what you have to say? I said, honey, I love you. I'm glad to see you. I want a Kerry Blue Terrier. And she said, I, I don't know what that is. Or maybe I do, but I, I, I've never seen it. 
And this is a rare Irish, that the national dog of Ireland is the biggest terrier and Interpol uses them as cop dogs, but they're small. So I always thought, I've always thought that was a cool breed because, you know, 30, 40 pounds and the cops use them for everything. They have a big head and big teeth and like they're the smartest dog there is. So she takes out her phone. First, she says, you know, we have four dogs. You plan on opening a kennel? <laughs> and I said, it's a bad idea, but I want a Kerry Blue Terrier. So she goes on, online. She says, well, we're going to have to go to Ireland. For that. And I said, and I don't see you going to Ireland anytime soon. Forgive me for saying. And <laughs> you look like shit. <laughs> and I said, let me go to the American Kennel Club. There's got to be somebody breeding them here. She comes back and she says, all right, she's looking on her phone. She says, there's five breeders in the U.S. There's one in Western New York. They don't have any puppies. There's one in Montana or something. I don't remember all the exact states. And I said, well, nobody has puppies. I said, that was four. You said five. What about Arizona? You know, and I'm slurring and I'm out of it. You know, she says, through gritted teeth, she says, there is one in Arizona. <laughs> I said, how, how far away? She says, not far. And I said... And she goes, they just had six puppies. Five are already sold. And I said, call the lady. Call the breeder. And give her a deposit. And she's looking at me like I'm out of my mind. So, you know, a week or two later when I get out of the hospital, I'm in a chair and I got a bag on my leg and I got IVs and all kinds of stuff on my head and whatever. And she, she drives me out to see this breeder and, you know, I was, I was really a pathetic sight. You know, I, I, she has to push me. And when we get to the swale where these little puppies are playing, I sort of pitch forward out of the chair and I'm on the ground with them. And, you know, and the breeder is like looking at, this is like the most grotesque thing she's ever seen. <laughs> and I sit there on the grass for an hour playing with these puppies and I say, I want this one. So we ended up with this little dog. And it's weird because it seems like... Um, there was some spiritual or odd root to this urge. Like, why? Why would yeah. I wake up thinking that? Yeah, that's so, so weird. You know, of course, I love this little puppy to death and his daddy's baby and everybody rolls their eyes. I take her everywhere. And she's six months now. But I'm still kind of waiting to see what was the purpose of this. And it may be as simple as it's just kept me alive. It's given me a reason to keep going, um, which is not a bad thing. But there may be something else. I don't know. But there's, that dog is never more than, you know, 24 inches from me. Pretty cool. That is a wild story. Speaking enthusiastic about your tail out here, we have a dog in the next, in the neighbor's yard going insane and barking left and right, <laughs> probably to cheer on your story. I think so. To uh, make a comment about... <laughs> Funny. Well, I can't say that this one is not a barker. Yeah. yeah, she's kind of a holy terror, but I'm hoping that she settles down in six months, you know, but between zero and a year. Not so good. Yeah, yeah. you got to use earplugs and have the patience of Job, you know, but, wow. but I love that little dog, so it helps. You know? So this thing of living with complete and total uncertainty, because you basically don't know if you're going to be alive three months later or not, that clearly does things. Uh, it's kind of hard to live with future plans or any of that because you don't know anything essentially or like living it very much day to day. I mean, it's not exactly a full on that sentence where you know, okay, I have one month to go, that's it. 
but it is a situation where you have no idea how things are going to pan out, the timing of anything. You don't know if these things uh, actually heals you. And it turns out you have uh, many years to live. You don't know if you don't at all. How do you approach that? Because that's, you know, we can talk about impermanence all we want. We can talk about, you know, being in the moment. But this takes it to a whole other level. Right. And in combination with the pain. Yeah. Um, it's it's not only that you don't know, you know, when a piano is going to fall on your head when you're walking down the street, because we're all in that situation. Sure. But the, the question is that I, I deal with, you know, like every morning when I get up is how much longer am I going to endure this condition and this pain and without knowing that it's going to get better? Right. Um, right. And knowing how, if it doesn't get better, the exit is uh, devastating. So any any death, I suppose, is devastating from a certain point of view. But um, living living with a lot of discomfort, limitations. So let me let me address the question of plans because there's mm -hmm. a strange thing about that. In a way, and, and I don't mean to, this to sound horrible, I hope it doesn't, but in a way, the fact that I got this as the world fell into a pandemic um, simplified certain things because most of my plans outside of my routine of you know martial arts practice many hours a day and writing books many hours a day. Those are the things I do. So beyond that, the only plans I make, you know, of any moment are travel. And that means, you know, going to Southeast Asia or um, China or wherever for my writing retreats and researching my books, you know, writing them mostly there, coming back and finishing them, cleaning them up, blah, blah, blah. So since travel to any place that, you know, was is attractive to me is off the table. Uh, travel to China is even without COVID is off the table for me on account of my political stance in regard to the Communist Party. Um, and the fact that I had a relationship or relationships with a lot of people in China, including government people who, you know, okayed my, my books to be translated and, you know, purchased uh, movies, uh, you know, books for movies for me. The, and, and of course, most importantly, ordained me a monk. When I make public statements against uh, what's happening in China, you know, the, the security services notice that they, you know, they read my newsletter, they hack my site, and you know, I'm not shy about these opinions. Growing up in, you know, in a Holocaust survivor family, I'm I'm not willing, you know, to, to sacrifice telling it like it is and speaking out when bad things happen just for my own convenience. So there's a certain a little, even though I'm, I'm not by any means a famous person or have a big platform or anything, there's just um, a sense that, you know, there may be a sense that I was, you know, betrayed them or whatever. But this is, this is all lumped into the things that I can't do. And, you know, taking, making plans to travel anywhere. Um, you know, I, I visited with you last, in the middle of last summer and the last time I went anywhere, really. 
um, and, and drove up and down the California coast a little bit with my family. And, but, you know, it was, it was not easy. I was very debilitated. I'm probably more debilitated now in some ways and less in other ways. Some, you know, conditions have eased and others have gotten worse. But making a plan, uh, my wife and I are trying to make a plan to spend uh, our, our significant next birthdays in Taipei. Whether I will be around at that time, you know, in the summer, whether I will be able to take a flight like that um, and have the energy, you know, to, to do all the kinds of things that travel to Asia from the U.S. entail, whether it's the time change or anything. It's very, very day by day. And your point about keeping your cool in the face of this stuff you know, every day is, is well taken. And I just proceed as if I'm going to be able to do certain things because if I'm not, nothing was lost, right? Uh, unless I'm spending a lot of money to buy tickets that are not refundable or something, which I would not do in my circumstance, then really nothing to be lost by trying to be a little optimistic. On the other hand, I've really been working this through in my head because it's just like a daily thing, tests and surgeries. And to get attached to outcome, which is, you know, a big Taoist number, is, is really an especially bad idea right now. Whether it's that, you know, I'm going to have to take my own life in, in a month because things just don't work out and I don't want to die the other way. Or whether I'm going to you know, be alive in 10 years and doing some stuff. Whether it's a positive or a negative outcome, attachment to it is a bad idea. So this is a really powerful lesson in, you know, watching cycles and the interplay of yin and yang and seeing how every day is different. It's, it's, it's almost inhumanly impossible the way our brain works, I think, to not have any attachment to outcome. I mean, you know, there's this little Chinese restaurant that I only kind of recently discovered, having thought I, I had hit all the joints in Tucson, and, and they make these Singapore noodles. Mm -hmm. And I find myself <laughs> dreaming about those Singapore noodles. Yesterday, I, I drove down to the place to have some lunch and found that it was closed on a Tuesday, which, yeah, but, it, you know, Tucson is spread out and I live out in the mountains, so it wasn't an insignificant drive. It wasn't a big deal, but, you know, I got there and I'm like, ah! Right? <laughs> so, you know, just naturally, naturally, the, the brain just does that. You know, we, we look forward to even things as simple as, you know, taking a leak. I mean, you're driving and you got to take a leak and now you're attached to finding a damn restroom. Yes. Finding a restroom or a place where you can hide behind the door in a car along the road, <laughs> you know, and not, not be visible to both directions, you know, like yeah. it, it, it's, it's almost, it, it's, it's sort of like saying um, one of those really terrible cliche, stupid, inaccurate things about meditation, which is that, you know, your mind is, not doing anything, right? Think about nothing or don't think of anything or 
all kinds of nonsense ideas that people have about meditation. And so to, to have no attachment to outcome um, isn't really possible. But what is possible is to change your perspective on everything so that whatever attachment there is, is seen in the scheme of things. You know, we say da da wu shing, right? The Tao is big. And this is a this is something that I talk about a lot in lectures and classes and so on, which is that you want to look at the world through your zoom lens and you're all stuck on, you know, macro. So you're looking at like, you're as close with your nose to a flower. And, and then uh, you zoom it out until, you know, you, you see your room or your house or you know, your city, your country, the planet, the galaxy, and you realize that whatever it is that you're worried about or preoccupied with is, is pretty much insignificant and nothing. And that, that doesn't obviate the strength of feelings, but it does soften disappointment and hope and all that just a little bit by putting it into perspective. Something else about this, I suppose, is that all the talk about mindfulness, you know, being present all the time. This is a beef that I've had with certain other teachers over the years. And I try not to, you know, get into it a lot because it's not going anywhere good. They, they don't agree and that's it. Um, but mindfulness by itself, it's like a screwdriver, right? Uh, okay, I've got a good screwdriver. I'm mindful. Now what? Don't use it as a power handle. Right? If, if you have a screw that needs turning, the screw, the screwdriver is good to have. But without a purpose for the tool, in other words, without elevating our compassion or our patience or helping us accomplish some particular goal in the world, mindfulness by itself just can lead to a sort of you know, masturbatory narcissism where you're just watching your own mind all the time without any purpose to the activity other than to quiet, you know, what, what some people call the, the monkey mind. And I'm not saying that that's not a good goal, but it isn't enough. Yeah, because I mean, a more mindful Hitler doesn't really help the world a whole lot. It's like, you know, you can still be a complete dick and be mindful. That doesn't really solve the problem. That just, it's like saying discipline or willpower. I mean, those are cool things if put to the service of something good, if put to the service exactly. of somebody who's an awful Precisely person, right. they're not that good. Yeah, unsurprisingly, we're on the same page about that. So, <laughs> so I think um, we, we don't, in Taoism, we really don't have the same thing that Buddhism has, which caused such a schism in the Buddhist community, you know, over centuries, over millennia now, the argument about being an arhat or being a bodhisattva, right? So I, I think about years ago that my teacher and I were driving in a 95, I-95 in Florida. And, you know, he looked around and he said, you know, the, the world, the world is fucked. It's too late, you know, and, and imagine, you know, what he thinks now. But um, <laughs> this is so much worse than it was then at the time of this conversation, although all the seeds were already spreading. So he said, this, you know, I just want to go away. 
join the etheric plane and be gone and do whatever I can do there. But, and I said, well, you know, I still believe in the possibility of some spontaneous evolutionary event that, you know, spreads across the world and changes the way we look at each other. Yeah, like, for example, there could be a pandemic and everybody come together and work with each other and they all understand the important priorities in life. Could be something, you know, something unlikely like that. Yeah, just like that. <laughs> Or a global thermonuclear war that yeah. Mr. Putin seems so bent on starting. Whatever it is, I, I was thinking more in evolutionary terms because, you know, spontaneous evolution is a thing. And, you know, at some point we grew a thumb. At some point we stood up straight. And, you know, if you look in the fossil record, it doesn't look like it happened in a second. It was over, you know, millions of years, maybe. But the brain is an organ and the brain can change just like every other thing that can evolve in our body. We're, so we're really reaching for a Hail Mary there. Huh? Exactly. <laughs> I like the silver lining approach, but. <laughs> That's right. So my, my, of course, my master, you know, looked at me and he said, Well, you know, you, you would say that because, you know, you're, you're in service to other people and, you know, you, you don't want to give up on them. And I, I said, I guess. He said, you know, I'm an Arhat and you're a Bodhisattva. And, and you know, this is, we're not going to agree on this um, it, because there's no right answer. Um, so, you know, some Buddhists feel that there is a right answer that, you know, Buddha, after he became enlightened, Buddha didn't just, you know, climb up the tree and evanesce into the heavens. You know, he, he, he spent his life helping, teaching. So their point of view is that, you know, he, he was recommending the Bodhisattva path, but I'm not an expert on Buddhism, so I'm not going to go any further than this. Anyway, the point is that being present in a situation like this means that most of the time I am present with pain. And I'm not a big fan of dulling my pain unless... I absolutely cannot take it or cannot function. So I use, you know, those kinds of medications very sparingly. Fortunately, you know, I genetically do not have an addictive predilection. So I, I don't worry about that kind of thing, but I just don't, I want to be able to be, you know, in my life. And I'm not knocking people who dull their pain because I do it too when I, when I must, but I, I try to be more present and, You know, I think my wife would say, you know, he does a pretty good job, but, you know, I, I would never represent that I'm perfect in this. You know, I, I have negative thoughts and I lose my cool sometimes in, in the midst of this, um, but, I, but I do my best. One thing that happened in my long hospital visit <clears throat> was, and, and you and I have personally talked about this before, I had kind of a vision quest, I mean, not a quest, but I had just had a vision. Um, and so for those days that I was unconscious, I was zooming around the cosmos. And I had the very clear sense that my journey was curated and that there was someone, something with me And it rather felt like going to the Metropolitan Museum or the Louvre or someplace and getting a private tour from the curator, right? So that it's a better experience than if you just go into the museum and wander around. So I was shown things that something wanted me to see. So I saw the Big Bang. I saw evolution in progress 
on many planets. And some listeners may know that there are, there are folks out there who think that Tao is a word for evolution, this propulsive force that just makes everything unfold. Uh, so maybe that was why I was shown those things. In any case, I saw the end, right? So the Big Bang, the explosion, and then all these other things. I zoomed around through comets, and it was wild. I mean, it was great, really. Uh, and then I saw the contraction of the universe, you know, that brings it to an end. So one way that some theoretical physicists think about reality, and, and some Taoists do too, is that, you know, you have this great inhale and exhale. You have a, a bursting forth from, a you know, everything, everything there is is the size of a pencil point. And then it expands into infinite distances. And as the expansion slows, just like according to the laws of entropy, the law of entropy, eventually it just gets cold and it stops. And there's this relationship between heat and movement. And, and eventually, right, if, if, if you make things cold enough, they stop moving. And once they are not moving, there is no change. And once there is no change, there is also no time. So at some point in this expansion, a contraction begins and you go back to the little tiny thing. And this is a, a sort of a Taoist view, but also a scientific view of how things may work. Anyway, in the middle of that somewhere, I was shown the end of life on earth, including the end of the human race. And the end of the human race was shown to me as we become something else and we're no longer on earth. And more specifically, I was shown things that looked like gigantic crab claws, like the Dungeness crab or some other crab, which has a very small body and these huge long legs. But of course, there was no body. There was just the legs. And they were floating around in space. And they were, we're talking about, you know, miles and miles long. These things were big. And they were made of some artificial material. I remember thinking at the time that it kind of looked like carbon fiber, but it wasn't. It was you know, a material that we don't have yet, presumably. And um, and our consciousness, the global consciousness, everybody was, was in these structures, but it was totally AI in a, you know, and there was no feeling or, but, but our consciousness persisted. And I reacted very badly to that vision. I, I, I didn't care for it, you know, I, I, I'm, a guy that studied organic, studied evolutionary biology as a, as a, as a young man. And I'm, I'm very fond of, you know, living things. Um, honestly, human beings may not be my favorite as a group, but um, my, my friends and my family sure are. And then, you know, I'm also very connected to the hummingbirds and the nematodes and the turtles and all that stuff that I write about and enjoy. And I didn't like the idea of the end of organic life as I know it. And I protested. And it was the only time in my vision that I had a back and forth with the curator. It's the only time he spoke because the rest of the time I was like kind of slack jawed. It wasn't really my place to say anything. I was too busy taking everything in. And, and I, I resisted this vision of the future of humanity, which may or may not be true. And, um, and I got kind of the tough love answer about this, which is that, you know, buddy, 
I love you, but it doesn't really matter what you think about this. Um, it's not about you. This is where it's going. This is, I'm just showing you what's going to happen. Sorry, you don't like it. You know, and I, and, and I got so agitated that that was when I woke up. So it took me weeks of thinking about this experience, which was most definitely not a dream. There were many cues that it wasn't a dream. It was something else. And it took me weeks. I mean, I guess on some level, I'm still trying to integrate what I saw because this was not a flash thing. This wasn't like a 30-second you know, end to your, your night's sleep. This went on for days. So the, I've omitted a great, great deal of detail. But I came to the conclusion that I was wrong to protest. I couldn't help myself. It made me cry to think about this and that this is where we're going to end up. But at the same time, I noticed, given the perspective of my own suffering, that I hadn't been right in protesting because there was no suffering. So in that manifestation, in that future of our consciousness, there is no pain and there is no suffering. And maybe, you know, maybe that's why it's a good thing. And, you know, the, 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 my, my curator, I wasn't available for me to have a further discussion on the matter, but I've just been thinking about it. But there also doesn't seem to be the stuff that makes life juicy enough for to be interesting to you. So it just feels like, okay, there's none of the pain and suffering, but there's none of the good stuff either. So I guess your protest, so to speak, was what's the fucking point? That just inert and cold. So it did feel that way to me, although I cannot really say because my thought about the suffering thing came later. Mm -hmm. I didn't have that thought during sure. the experience. I had it in contemplating the experience. So I don't really know that it's true, nor do I know that, you know, pleasure and excitement are also gone. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I don't know. That's beyond. Yeah. I didn't get that far. And, and maybe if I had kept my Wuji in the face of this vision and hadn't so violently protested it and kept my mouth shut, I might have learned the answer to this. And that really pisses me off. I'm mad at myself for this because like I was right at the end. But um, about, back, back to Uji, I, I realized when I woke up um, that I was most definitely not the monk I wanted to be. And I, I listened over and over to... Um, to amazing grace on my phone because I connected to the word wretch. And the reason I connected to the word wretch is, is the following. I understood that if this entity or any entity came to me and said, hey, you've climbed, you know, a thousand steps up the mountain and you only have like eight left to achieve what you've been wanting to achieve your whole spiritual life since you were a boy. So you're almost there. But let me just be honest and say that those last eight steps are gonna suck beyond all imagination. You are going to have pain and misery and frustration that you cannot even imagine your body could give you. And in that eventuality, 
to be honest with myself, I have to say that I would decline. I would say thousand steps is good. Yeah, yeah. Me. I'm happy. You know, where I am is I'm, good. Yeah, I like yeah. the year. Yeah. And I don't need those eight. Don't I mean, I, ideally, I would like the full Monty. No, but, but frankly, yeah. I'm too much of a wretch, too weak, too much of a pussy to do those last eight steps. And of course, you know, the obvious thing clearly is that, you know, I, I have gone through the eight steps, not because I was such a macho monk. But because I had no choice, and if I was given a do-over, I then no, no. So you know that was really helpful in eliminating the last vestiges of of anything egoic that isn't entirely required to survive. Right. So any feelings of hey, look at me, or you know whatever I had left after all that thousand steps, you know that that is obliterated. And it has obliterated it, not like, you know, nuking it, but rather by just showing how irrelevant our whole all about me culture is. And, you know, the American anti-culture, because that's the term I prefer. American anti-culture is so all about me that this is why we are in the trouble we are in. And it's not just America. It's largely Western culture, which we have now infected Eastern culture with. But, you know, this view of nature as having been given to us by some concocted nonsense deity that we made up thousands of years ago in a Syrian storm god or something, you know, and that we can crap the place up and, and, you know, use it as our toilet and kill everything. You know, that is where this kind of narcissism eventually leads. And that's where we are right now as we're recording this, you know, the war in Ukraine is going on. You know, we, we have a guy who wants to be a, an emperor. He wants to be another tsar and go back in time to when, you know, Russia was this great empire. This kind of narcissism isn't just about some obscure monk in Arizona. It's about the whole, everybody now. And the really powerful people, that narcissism is en enormously destructive. So I guess, you know, I, I would like the people in that kind of power, whether it's Xi Jinping or Putin or anybody else, other tyrants around the world, I would like people, you know, to have this experience to give them sensitivity and compassion, which are big Taoist things. And, and so maybe that connects to our earlier chat about what could happen in the world to change everything. I don't, I don't know. It seems like that might be a way. Yeah. Cause the, the narcissistic aspect in some way to me is a sign of uh, of people who lack the ability to enjoy life in all of its fun and like these are people who live in mansions and can't feel like they are living in a mansion who have the most amazing food and can taste it they are kind of like these hungry ghosts going through life trying to consume everything to make them feel something because they cannot feel the stuff that makes life good and so you have to make up for it by by going that route and it's you know in that sense it feels like a disease of the i mean i think about how many times in history you have some guy who is the number two guy maybe he's the younger brother of the guy who's gonna inherit the empire and all he's got to do is sit back pat his younger his older brother on the back go 
go ahead, take the job. I'm glad for you. I'll be here to help you out if you need to. In the meantime, I'll hang out in my sprawling villa with every comfort known to mankind and enjoy life to the fullest. You have it made. And half of this asshole can do that. And they're like, no, I need to be the emperor. I'm going to go on this fratricidal war to kill my brother and take over power. And he's like, what the hell is wrong that you have the best life that anybody could have handed to you and you can't sit back and actually enjoy it but you're so obsessed with ego and power that that's where you're going it's really bizarre it's really bizarre so of course you're presenting a very Taoist model um, um the the number two you know historically is the Taoist master He's the one who was in the emperor's ear, but he's not the emperor and he doesn't want to be the emperor. Right? That's he's exactly what you said. No, 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 I, I'm good. I'm good. You, you do all that shit. I don't want to do that. Uh, and, and if you're making a big mistake or you ask my opinion, I'll tell you. But otherwise, you know, I'll, I'll give you whether you're, this prince should marry that princess. I'll give you what's an auspicious day to uh, invade this uh, other little kingdom if you absolutely must. But um Doing it myself is not really. I, I don't want. I want to be as in the, as in the Laozi. I want to be nameless, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that role has become so much clearer and more attractive to me through all this experience, <laughs> and I would much rather much, much rather um, take a walk with my dog in the mountains than, you know, be interviewed on, on CNN, uh, you know, and, and have to deal with the thousands of people calling me. And, and, no, 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 not for me. Not for me. Where do you think we went wrong? Because I recently have managed to discover, just by luck more than anything, to sit in the sunshine with my cat purring in my lap is a perfect moment. And to be given that one time in this existence is an incredible gift. And that if you can kind of keep my life's relationship with my cat, we do it over and over again. And those moments, I feel like this is what we're here for. Sounds like you're uh, waking up. Sounds like you're waking up. Good. Sounds good you know? to me. Well, my worry, my worry always is, I mean, there's so many folks and I do want to, it may not be the moment for this, but I don't, I just never thought this is just one single journey. And uh, I feel the fact to have, to be a, a male on this planet with a daughter has been so important to me expanding as an entity. I learned so much by that being a part of this experience. And there's probably a thousand more lessons like that that I have to learn before I achieve what we're here to learn. That, yeah, I see that there's definitely an end, and it could be, you know, on the freeway home tonight. But I'm just still excited that it seems like there are lessons going on. And even in the hate and the garbage that spews everywhere, there's still enough decent things to be hopeful for it. And I think, as you were saying earlier, I mean, this is the things that on cosmic levels we'll never, you know, be able to understand in our tiny little blip of a moment here. But... Man, once you start to recognize the good stuff, I would think even with a little bit of time left, it's still hopeful. So 
with your permission, I would like to reframe very slightly what you said sure. because I, I liked it. And I think that there, it's not that there are a thousand lessons. It's that there are, is one lesson, but that there are a thousand pointers and reinforcements, you know, in and to that lesson. Uh, and I, I do believe that although we all have our own experiences and our own, you know, circuitous and spiraling and sometimes challenging path to get to the place, I think the, the place is pretty much the same for everyone. And that's what I like about um, the, the three treasures of Taoism, you know, compassion, humility, and frugality. There's some other ways to interpret those words, but I like those. Because they're, they're just like very straightforward things. And, you know, it could be as simple and seemingly trivial as, uh, and this happened to me just the other day, I finished a jar of something in the kitchen. You know, I think it was some fruit spread or something like that put on my toast. And, and I threw the jar away. You know, I, I, I rinsed it and I threw it into the recycle. And I, I looked down at it in the recycle bag. How can this be a good idea? How can I take a resource like that and throw it away? And if I live like that, letting the water run while I'm brushing my teeth or, you know, unnecessary packaging and, you know, throwing away pounds of plastic from stuff I ordered from Amazon and on and on and on. As soon as you begin to realize that if you're doing that and you're doing that every day and you multiply it by 8 billion or whatever, you know, people in their days. How can that possibly be a good idea when we're living in a finite, on a finite planet, right? That just, so this is a very simple and, and not nearly as emotional experience as, as what you described with your cat, but it's, these are pieces of the same thing. This kind of waking up and what happens in, and what has happened to me as a result of my situation these days is that I'm much more likely to notice and act upon the noticing, right? So took that thing out of the trash, cleaned it more thoroughly, went into its little screw metal cap and cleaned the threads so it was really clean. And I put it in the cupboard thinking, you know what, I'll use it to make tea someday or I'll put something else in it, but I'm not going to throw away that manufactured thing that is not over. Right? And I will rather use that than, you know, go buy a, I mean, this is a very prosaic and simple example, but I've started to use those little jars to serve tea to my students in my class instead of buying paper cups, right? I mean, it's just, just a, because one thing, you know, has a certain feel and a certain respect for the world and our place in it, and the other does not. And I also find that I, I really can't, kill anything these days, not even a bark scorpion in my house. Um, and and I, I just, I'll trap the scorpion under something, you know, put a glass over it, slide a paper under it. And by the way, if that thing stings me, we're talking really seriously bad news. And in the condition that I'm in now, I don't even know if I could survive it. But I, I just, you know, I, I slide, it's a very nasty little scorpion. And I, and I just slide the paper, I turn it upside down and I take it and toss it over my, my retaining wall in my yard into the wash, right back to nature. 
Now, you know, every once in a while, one's coming out of my shoe or something, and I reflexively kill it. But I don't, I choose to, to try not to do that. And, and this is something that I might not have bothered with before. The Arizona Department of Tourism is really pleased with you. Move to Arizona, get Valley <laughs> Fever, and deal with deadly scorpion on a daily basis. By all means, move to the state. It's so funny. You know, this is a conversation <laughs> that I've had with, uh, there's an institute here in town, that part of the university, you know, I've been philanthropic with them and given them some help because obviously, you know, personal thing and I don't want anybody else going through this. So I'm, I'm a man of limited means, but I gave what I could give. And, you know, I, I talked to them, I said, why, why aren't billions of dollars being thrown at finding you know, a cure for this, a vaccine for this. And I said, is it because Arizona is the number one move to state and there's just gazillion bucks in businesses here and, uh, you know, real estate here and all that and jobs here. And so nobody really wants to talk about this at all. And, you know, it's, it's as disgusting as the business of not finding a cure because there aren't enough people suffering from it to make it profitable. I mean, come on, really. It's disgusting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see the point. <laughs> ay, ay, yeah. Ay. Inside your brain. I was chatting with my mother. She's in her 70s now, and she had a bit of a fall. And we were talking about inside her mind, does she feel any different than she did when she was a kid? Because I kind of feel the same way, that that spark that looks through my eyes seems to be the same critter it just has a harder time getting around now because the joints aren't as good or, you know, the age of the body doesn't seem to have a whole lot to do with the age of the, what's driving it. How do you feel at this age? So I, I thank you for that question. Cause I was just thinking, I, we, we need to take a, a 90 degree tack with this conversation. Um, so, you know, in the, in the Taoist tradition, we believe that to create an enlightened mind, we, we don't use that term, it's not, it's a Buddhist term, but, um, you know, to, to more accurately pop the cork out of like way, your crown point that connects you to heaven and all that, um, pure yang, you have to have a foundation in physical health and strength to grow or nurture or cultivate that mind. So there is a link between how you feel physically and what you can achieve mentally. And, and that's where this whole umbrella of these Taoist practices come in, whether it's Tai Chi or Qigong or meditation or whatever, reading uh, scriptures. So I feel not exactly the same as I did as a Yazi. And, and I'm, I'm glad for that because there were a lot of impulses, a lot of self-destructive habits, a lot of indulgences and excesses that I've learned not to do. And that doesn't mean that I don't enjoy things or have enthusiasm for things. You know, I still have, I wrote this book called Turtle Planet um, because I have this, you know, 55 year love affair with turtles. And, and so, uh, I've, I've kept like a hundred and something, 110 out of the 300 existing species on earth. I've either worked with in a zoo, worked with in the wild or seen in the wild or, you know, kept in, in my home and 
and raised them and bred them. So I have an undiminished enthusiasm for turtles. I'm just plucking this as an example out of that. And what I don't have is I don't have Galapagos and Aldabra giant tortoises wandering around my Florida backyard anymore that I put my young son on and had him ride them like a, um, like a horse, which is probably not great for the turtle. And I'm a bit embarrassed I did that. But on the other hand, he was very small and they were very big and strong. So it didn't hurt them at all. Still, I remember going out and, you know, just in the morning, stepping outside with a cup of good Chinese tea and surveilling my little backyard with these, you know, antediluvian giants wandering around and thinking, you know, life, life is really good. And, and I, don't, I don't live there anymore and I don't have those turtles anymore, some of whom were with me for more than 30 years. But I still figured out a way you know, I have a little sort of hobby room next to my laundry room and I put in some little shelves there and I, I put some little tortoises in there and you know, I have a few endangered species that I'm working with in there that a lot of people have a hard time keeping alive. So I have another dimension to the same passion, right? And I have allowed that to continue. And it's like every every morning, you know, I get up and do my ablutions and then boom, before I sit down at a computer, do anything else, um, I make some toast and tea and I go in and I, I look at the turtles and I see what they need and I feed them and I clean them and, and I spend an hour in there or something. And then I begin my day. And so in that regard, I'm the same as I was as a nine-year-old kid in a canoe in Connecticut who saw a turtle come out of the water and go, wow, look at that. That SOB can dive down under the surface and he's aware of and in a whole world, which I can't know. And then he sticks his head out and he's in the same world I am with the top surface of the thing. And I'm floating around on a canoe. He can see the sky and the trees. And I'm very jealous, you know, that he's got both and I don't, right? So, I mean, those kinds of things have persisted. But there's also a lot of other stuff that, you know, I'm happy to say hasn't persisted. I love turtles too. We had one 180 gallon tank that she lived in. It's a redder slider for a long time. So when we moved to our new house that we just moved to, I put the tank in the backyard and I built her a little slope because she could always get up on and, and, and bask. But now she's outdoors. She has a slope so she can get back to the water if she wants to. And she found a little niche in a corner. And the best part about this new yard is it's brick block that goes deep into the, into the ground so she can't get out. And she went and made her first actual outdoor nest within five days of us arriving. And uh, though they weren't fertilized, and she had, had she had laid eggs, but never in a circumstance where it was so perfect for her. It was just like, oh, you're home. And uh, I just love turtles. I, while we're talking turtles, we were in Maui a couple of years ago, and this uh, snorkel Jedi came out. My wife didn't want to jump into the water, like in, into the craters or anything. She wanted to go from the beach in. So he helped her get out, but he actually chatted with us a bit before we got in the water about what we would see, you know, because hard to communicate once you're in there. And I was just so excited to swim with the turtles. And we couldn't find them, and he was taking us here and there, and he was damn and determined we were going to find a turtle. With time running left, a true juvenile, so she's only about two and a half foot shell, came right up to my face and brushed me the same way my cat nuzzles me and then swam on her way. And once again, these tiny little blinks, these tiny little moments, who wouldn't want to be a turtle or a whale if you were hanging out on this planet? 
you know, no taxes, no troubles. You've got your battles with nature, but man, we do it so wrong. And when you get a blink at when, you know, that turtle went down and had some more delicious algae or whatever, and probably still after to this day, I know we can do better. Yeah, the biggest threat to them is us. Absolutely. Um, plastic, mostly, but pollution, too. nets. You know. But really, what strikes me about your description of, of your turtle encounters is this is the non-dual, right? This is the absence of us and them. This is compassion in action, right? You Compassion just means feeling with. Right. And, and so, you know, I remember in Florida that there would be people who would drive across the, the state and that cross state highway 75. And I would see them aim at the turtle crossing the road and, you know, or the snake and just try to hit it on purpose to hear it go pop. I don't know. Um, but feeling with other creatures, whether it's your domestic pet or an exotic thing or something you encounter. You know, I am so blessed to have had so many experiences like that. And, you know, I had my own eye 24 inches away from the eye of a blue whale. Mm. And I looked right into its eye. I mean, I have a lot of stuff like that. And every one of those experiences is, was, was and is unforgettable to me. Because you always see recognition. I'm sorry. You always see recognition. That whale, you knew that whale was seeing you, didn't you? Oh my God, that whale had galaxies in its yeah. eyes. And, and one thing you for sure realize when you stir eye to eye with a blue whale, and the reason I got that close was because it swam under a little fishing boat that I was in and it rolled up and looked at me and I was sitting on the stern, which was, you know, like a foot and a half out of the, out of the water. It's a small boat, you know, and, and we just looked at each other. You, you have an experience like that and you realize we are not the only intelligence on planet earth and we are probably not the most intelligent either um you know there's just a whole different way of of being but um we're, we're not we're not seeing that kind of awareness um from the chinese government we're not seeing it from mr putin um and many other places in the world that we are not seeing it and the question is you know how can we at the same time, recognize that we have no power over any of this. But how can we work for, you know, awakening and change? And the only answer that I've been able to come up with as a monk is to just see myself as a rock that got thrown into the pond. And the little ripples that go out from the things I say or do, mostly I do. Who knows where they're going? Who knows what will be? Who will be affected or what will be touched by that? And that's all you can do. But if everybody looked at it that way, then all of a sudden, you know, there's there's some hope. Well, with uh, as little attachment to outcome as we can master, it would be fun to continue the conversation, meaning that you're in one piece and drugs are working for you and you're getting healed. That would be That would be a good one. Um, understanding the fact that none of this is in our hands, but uh, yeah. I think that would be the way to go. Well, thank you for this great conversation. Thank you. Anything else you want to add? No, not really. Uh, 
if you're if you're in the southwest stay away from arizona yes we got that <laughs> i'm gonna say you know donate a little dough to the valley fever sites that are out there be aware of it i don't know if you know question of stay away from arizona maybe if i hadn't moved here and i stayed in florida you know i would have gotten hit by a bus who knows right, right. Of it's it's really of that kind of second guessing of course there's, no that, there's that mosquito-borne thing. Yeah, you know? exactly. It's always there's something. always something. And there is a part of me that is aware of how much my feeling and thinking have deepened as a result of this experience. And as, we, as I confessed earlier, I'm still a pussy and I still would have of said course. no to this. But, you know, since I didn't, nobody asked. Yeah, um, I might as well. I'm trying to make the best of it. You know, yeah. at least I'm aware of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Got to take the small wins. <laughs> Little ways. Do our best. Thank you so much for the chat. I certainly appreciate it. It's been I was great. happy to see both of you. I'm glad we had a little video to do this too. That was fun. And the funky music means one thing. It's the end of another fine episode of the Drunken Taoist Podcast. I thought that was fantastic. I mean, a bit of monologuing, but I figured let the man speak. Yeah, of course. I mm. think he's, uh, he's got a lot to say. It's interesting. So by all means, that's, I think, what's interesting in conversation. Sometimes conversations, you are go more back and forth. Sometimes you just let it roll. And both styles are good in their own way. No, it was perfect for this situation. And, you know, I, I guess I said in the show, but I still feel the same way. Uh, the only thing I can really equate this to is Duncan's interview with his mom. Mm -hmm. I mean, her last one was two days before she died. That's so I didn't think I thought I was going to be interested to see if he was going to get into like feeling the holding, but I don't think he's that close yet. No, so and that still has and hopefully he's too. not exactly. So yeah. it's still in that weird space where you don't know what it's going to look like, and uh, and hopefully it turns out better for him, and he has a lot more time, and that would be the way to go. Yeah, that's where I'm hoping. I'm definitely going to check out his turtle book, though, so I can't wait to dig yes, through that. Yes, exactly. You have it in your hands, so that's great. I forgot in the intro, if you sweet folks can take a look at our Amazon link and use that when you shop on Amazon, that would be great. Our Amazon link has been uh, is the incredible shrinking link in the sense that in terms of support <laughs> has gone from pretty good to uh, barely existent. So if you feel like reviving it... It's dbamazing.com. Again, letter D, letter B, amazing.com. Or you can go on the drunkentaoist.com uh, and just use uh, whatever the link is available there. And if you can use that when you shop Amazon, it helps us a whole bunch. Uh, our pal Wandering Ghost, we've used a couple of his tracks over the past couple of episodes just to fill in a little bit. Fantastic stuff. Check him out. And thanks for everybody who helps us out. Yes, indeed. So on that note... I think we can call it a day. Alrighty. Sweet. D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. Good shit. R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N and the numeral one. And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Dows Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as they come out. You can keep track of Daniele at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at RichieMon1. 
R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, and the numeral one. We'll see you all soon. Woo! I don't want to hear this. No, you don't. <laughs> in questo caso, in questo caso, le provvidenza di Dio. Duncan showed you the way, huh? Oh, man, isn't that scary to think? Nice. So don't kill people, do that instead. <laughs> this was great. Fucking awesome. And I love this conversation. I have nothing against chicken other than the fact that they are ugly and weird and strange. We've been no, having a great hour nice. here. Dun, dun, dun. Completely got lost. Are we doing the outro or the intro? We're right? outro. Oh, we're out. Okay, sorry. So that's so let's continue. Did you ever see the movie Tombstone with uh, Val Kilmer and uh, uh, your accent? It just whatever that movie is you were trying to tell me about. Can you translate for me, please? I believe the word was tombstone. Yeah, that one exactly. <laughs> just as I was saying, you know, Tombstone. <laughs> now, most everybody thought. <coughs> sorry. Well. <coughs> We'll do a cut on there. Or not. That was something else. <laughs> no, that's maybe too powerful. <laughs> what do I have to do? One day the rod shall teach you. Get back to work. Funky. Podcasting. It's like radio, but you can cuss.